good to see you this morning. I've been looking forward for the last couple of days to just being able to hang out with you here. And was really excited to get the opportunity to stick my eye teeth into this passage this last week. It's an awesome passage that we're going to study today. But as we start, uh, I just want to hit a couple basics for us as a family for the proper interpretation of this passage. I'm going to give it to you in a couple, four uh, small sound bites. Here's the first principle that we need to apply. That Exodus, as we've heard over and over and over again, is just a small story, isn't it? Within the greater story of the Bible as a whole. Number two, as we interpret the book of Exodus, we must also ask the same question we had asked with any other passage. What would its original recipients understand the text to mean? And and then only then can we ask the next question. What significance does this passage play on our understanding of the Bible as a whole? Or does God's mighty movement in this passage point us ahead to future events or give us a clear picture of what God has done or is doing in our generation? You see, in being careful at this level... We save ourselves the trouble that comes from wrongly applying uh, passages to ourselves that have their fulfillment at different times and with different people. Here's the third principle. We need to keep this word yada right in front of us. You know, we've heard it over and over again. It's one of God's major themes throughout this whole portion of scripture. For God, from beginning to end, is committing to helping his people have personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of him. And that's exactly what that word means. In Hebrew, it means to know God intimately. And that's exactly what we all desire today, isn't it? And that's why you've driven through the snow, is you want to step in and encounter God intimately. You want to yada him. Number four. And finally, the Bible has been given to us as a family for our transformation and not just information. He wants the truth to literally kick open the door like a SWAT raid and break into our lives and cause us to be changed as a result of it. Not just hearing, but hearing and then applying. Uh, we, we, we need to read and be changed. We need to hear and be changed. And that's what we're going to do today. I uh, grew up in Northern California. And I can remember going to this little uh, elementary school. And was so excited to actually make it to sixth grade. Sixth grade was, of course, the time where we were able to enter an exhibit in the science fair. And up to that point, all the kids were able to attend, but nobody could actually make an exhibit and have it entered into that competition, that science fair. And for the life of me over this last week, I can't remember what I built, what I brought to that science fair, but I can remember two exhibits like it was yesterday. One of them, this little girl had taken a mannequin head, removed the hair, and had her dad drill two holes right through this mannequin's lips, and then mounted it on this piece of wood, And behind one of those holes was a pipe, a clear pipe that was attached and went down into this bulb that she could squeeze. And then out of that bulb into a a canister that that had all sorts of filtration 
filtration paper in it, and then it went out into another hose that was attached to that other hole in that mannequin's lips. Now, you could never get away with this in America as it is today, but she, when it was her turn to do her exhibit, brought a cigarette out, shoved it in the lip of that mannequin, got a lighter out, (laughs) and lit that thing up and began vigorously pumping that bulb. And, of course, this mannequin began puffing on this cigarette, filled the whole gym with smoke. And I can remember looking at that filtration paper afterwards and saying, holy cow, there's no way I'm going to smoke. It was just covered in soot and ash and all sorts of garbage. Well, the second uh, exhibit that I remember was this little boy had made this, out of plaster of Paris, had made this volcano. And he had this little tape deck. And when it was his turn to do the exhibit, he, he kind of turned around and pushed play. He was a little guy. He pushed play and... There were all these sounds of rumblings and quakings and explosions. And then he kind of stealthily went around the back of this, this, uh, this volcano and poured this red liquid in. And within literally a split second, coming out of that volcano was this foaming red lava. And much to my parents' chagrin, I got home and I was uh, totally dedicated to figuring out how to make that lava. So in our... In our kitchen, I began to work on this science experiment, and I realized over time that if you take one part baking soda, and if you take one part red vinegar, or vinegar at least colored red, and you pour it together, you get exploding lava activity. (laughs) I think our countertops were permanently... Uh, died red after that season. If you take one of these elements, though, out of the experiment, what are you left with? You're left with a total failure. And that's exactly what we find all through the scripture regarding God and God's people. As God inserts himself into history, what do we see? We see Jacob in the book of Genesis living his life as a coward and deceiver, turned into uh, the father of a whole nation. We see Moses touched by God and changed from being just a shepherd, a stranger in a strange land, to a Christ-like figure, a nation changer in his generation. And of course we see Israel, a nation of several million slaves, broken out of their oppression by God and delivered into his hands. Now, in our portion of scripture today, such a great passage, we get to see God take the next step in changing Israel from slave to son. So let's get to it. Open up your Bibles, would you, to Exodus 25, 1 through 9. Also put your little pinky into uh, Exodus 40 because we're going to go there. Also, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 25, 1 through 9 says this. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, bring me an offering. You're to receive the offering from me from every, or uh, you are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you're to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, scarlet, yarn, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, 
spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I'll dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I'll show you. Now turn to Exodus 40, starting at the tail end of verse 33. So Moses, he finished the work. Then the cloud of God's presence covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the the tabernacle. God, we call out to you and we know that, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That our voice rises before you like many voices before us. And that you care. That you want us to know you. That you're moving by the power of your Holy Spirit to draw us closer and closer and closer to you. That it's you that unlocks the scripture to us. And we just trust you to do that today. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, would you? Okay, so the, the job, the somewhat daunting task that we have today is to cover 12 chapters of the book of Exodus. Rod and Neil are absolutely crazy. And yet they probably could pull it off far better than I'll pull it off. But today I, I want to encourage us our tasks should be a little bit easier simply because our portion of scripture is dedicated to one thing, the planning, the building, and the finishing of the tabernacle of God. Now, some of you might be asking the question, what is a tabernacle? Well, tabernacle in, in Hebrew, that word is mishkan, and it means residence or dwelling place. So the tabernacle in our text was to be the home of God among his people. Every time the nation of Israel would stop and set up camp, they'd also set up God's home right in the middle of their camp. And let's get right to the first point today. God chose to make his home in the midst of the tribe of Israel because God's nearness is God's solution. God's presence is his provision. His presence is the very gift of life. In fact, his presence so completely, was so completely life-changing that King David, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, wrote that it would be far better to spend one day in the courts of God than 10,000 elsewhere, and he wasn't exaggerating. St. Augustine says this from his book, Confessions. He would also agree with King David. He says, thou has made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. You see, the human heart is always seeking, always wanting, and yet never completely satisfied, is it, until it finds its rest in God. It's what we've also seen so far from the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, isn't it? Always thirsty, always hungry, sometimes grumbling, unsatisfied. And even now in our text with the nation equipped with the Ten Commandments, without God personally inserting himself into that nation, they're guaranteed failure. But in the midst 
of that failure, God has a very surprising response, doesn't he? Verse 8 says this. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Leviticus 26 says it this way. I love this passage. Moreover, I'll make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you, and I'll walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. And I'm, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves, and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk uprightly. You see... In God choosing to make his home in the center of the camp of Israel, he's communicating something. He's communicating that the greatest help that he could bring to the people is himself. You see that when the person of God draws near, he brings with himself all the benefit of all that he is. And God is the epitome of all things good. He's fullness of love, fullness of joy, fullness of patience, fullness of peace, fullness of faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness. And when he breaks out of the darkness and he walks into our lives, he brings all of those things naturally with him. You see, in the same way that bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. The opposite is also true. The more time we spend with God, the more we become like him. I see that in my wife all the time. In fact, I saw it in Alley this last Thursday. I'm over at the new building, uh, preparing for the prayer gathering over there. And uh, they surprised me and came to visit me. And they came rushing in the door. And I could tell right away by uh, the look on my oldest boy's face, Elias, that he had something that he was really excited about. He had this bag in his hand. He's coming running in with his big smile on his face. And as he began to pull whatever that item was out of the bag, he mishandles it, drops it on the ground. It was a gumball machine with a glass globe, and gumballs went everywhere. And he was just so... I mean, he didn't get to share it yet. And, and he was so just sad and I watched my wife walk right into him seek to understand love on him and listen and then help him navigate out of that disappointment I thought right away I want to be just like her I see patience and kindness and love in technicolor through her and in the same way God through proximity was going to apply his character to the nation of Israel. So in many ways, God moving into the middle of the camp is God being willing to move into the middle of the problem, isn't it? You see, God's deliverance for the nation of Israel had far less to do with location, the location of his people, and much more to do with the inclinations of his people. You know, the desires of the heart, false gods, the things that constantly distract us from God. And this is also true for us, isn't it? As we feel our lives are being undermined by bad choices, by distraction, for some in this room, lust and adultery, false gods, we can share that same hope. We have a God who is willing to move and set up his home right in the middle of our problem. We have a God who beckons us to draw near to him and he promises that he'll respond by drawing near to us, James 4.8. We have a God who over 28 different times in the Old Testament alone reaffirms his commitment to his people by saying, 
I will be their God and they will be my people. Have you ever wondered why the nation of Israel was so generous and bringing gifts to build the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Exodus 36 says that God actually had to say to Moses, stop the people from bringing more stuff because we have more than we need to finish the project. Why were they so generous? Because they knew that if they built it, he would come. They rightfully perceived the value of God's nearness, his presence is far surpassing any treasure that they were presently holding in their hand. That God's presence is very simply God's omnipotent ability to be present or make his nearness known. And think about it for a minute. I mean, Exodus 40, 38 just paints a great picture for us. It says, so the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So every time an Israelite man or woman would come out of their tent in the morning. They would see God all through the work day. They need only look and they would see God. And the last thing that they saw as they entered their tent in the evening was God. It'd be amazing. You see, God's vision was that the nation of Israel would have their senses, their lives full of him. Do you know what the Bible says about the benefits of the presence of God? I'm going to give you just a couple. There are many. Psalm 91 says there's real protection in his presence. Psalm 1611 says that in his presence is fullness of joy. Isaiah 40, 31 says there is strength and stability in the presence of God. Uh, Psalm 89 says his presence fills us with gratitude and praise. Psalm 63 says that his presence turns wayward desires into desire for him. And 1 Chronicles 13 teaches us that his presence brings blessing. This is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It's a story of this little guy named, well, he's not so little, but a little guy in regards to how much he's mentioned in the Old Testament named Obed-Edom. Do you know who he is? So King David, he, he, Obed-Edom makes his way right into the story of King David because King David is bringing the ark the, the place where God manifested his presence in that time to Jerusalem, the city of David. They're bringing it in wrong on an ox cart. And that ox cart, the ox stumbles. And Uzzah, crazy name, but his, the high priest's name was Uzzah. He freaks out and he tries to stabilize the ark. And when he touches it, boom, he's dead on the spot. And David fears for his life. So what does he do? He turns that ox cart and very carefully now brings that ark over to Obed-Edom's house. He lived nearby. Could you imagine that? Uh, the, God just killed this man, the high priest, and now we're going to place this ark, this manifestation of God, in your living room. And that's where the presence of God resided for three months with the ark, right in Obed-Edom's living room. And what does the text say? The text says that God, over that three months, blessed everything that he had. His blessing rested on it. So much so that David finds out and says, whoa, 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 okay, I'm going to come get that thing and bring it close to me. And sure enough, with glad procession, they bring it into the, the, the city of David. But the story's not over there because Obed-Edom Obed was so affected by the presence of God, he leaves his home and follows the presence of God to Jerusalem. And you still see his story strung out through, through much of the Old Testament. He has eight sons 
And the scripture says it was because God blessed him. He was a gatekeeper uh, in the temple. He was also a musician. Many of his sons were mentioned with Asaph, kind of the main songwriter and, and worship leader in that time. And it's always, any mention of Obed-Edom is, is always accompanied by, and it was because God blessed him. Strength and stability, joy, protection, praise, pure desire for God, blessing is truly found, family, in the presence of God. A question. Where is God's presence mentioned in the New Testament? He now lives in us, not in a cloud or a a pillar of fire by night, but he lives in us, in our heart, by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. God, and God doesn't change. And our expectations of him should not change. Last thought for this section. So how do we as God's people abide in this presence of God? Remember, God is willing, first and foremost, to step right into the middle of our problems, our lives, and set up his home. But how do we abide there long term? There are many different passages in the New Testament that you guys can just go after doggedly and study, like John 15 among, is just one among many. Deuteronomy 23, 14, I thought was just so pertinent uh, today. It says this, For the Lord your God moves around in your camp to protect you, to deliver your enemies to you, and your camp must be holy. So that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. God in this passage is specifically talking about excrement, actually, and other things that are unclean. The question that we have today is, are there unclean things that are scattered through our lives? Not that would drive God permanently away, but might grieve his Holy Spirit, where he would draw back his presence. Are there unclean things in us that we can, we can pick up and lay down? permanently before God so that we have nothing in our lives that would interfere with the free flow of God's presence, his spirit in us bringing all that God is to us. See, it's not worth it, family. We just got to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm done with living this way. It's ripping me off. I need God to wash over me, change me, and, and fully express his presence in the middle of my life. Hear the kind voice of God to us today. He speaks it to us just like he spoke it all through the Old Testament. I will be your God. Your God. I will be your God. And I choose you to be my people. Let's move on. We've got to move on. Um, There's a picture. Could you bring that picture up, Tim? You can't see it all though. Somebody turn the lights off. Back there? Okay, thank you. So this is one of my favorite pictures. Uh, We can't see it all that clearly. I'm so sorry. Um, And I can't promise that you'll see it any more clearly in the new building. We'll try the best we can. But um, this is Rembrandt's prodigal son. It's a uh, depiction of the father racing out and embracing his wayward son. Look at it. I wish you could see it as clearly as I was able to look at it this last week. 
the detail is amazing, even in the father's eyes, even in the differentiation between the father's hands. A mother's hand on the left, a father's hand represented in on the right. And uh, how decrepit uh, the son is, sandals falling off his feet. What does that bring to mind? And what does that cause to, to grow in you? Maybe some of you, like me, thought that was me. I was the prodigal. And I can't believe, God, that you would receive me back as you did. Some of you in the room are thinking about the artist, Rembrandt, and you're thinking, he is absolutely amazing. You see, any great work, thanks Tim, any great work of art, by the sheer nature of the piece, inspires two kinds of response. One, to the work itself, and the second is a response to the maker of that piece of art. You see, the artist's great talent is represented, isn't it, in the great work of art. And so it is with our text in the tabernacle today. You see, and this is my second point, the tabernacle was God-made, God-filled to reveal God to the nations. God designed it. God lovingly crafted it, and when it was done, God, God's presence filled it. And I've just got to tell you, as uh, much of this portion of scripture that we're, we're studying today is very different than many of the other narratives that we find in the Old Testament. Some of our favorites, like uh, David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of those great stories. This passage is a little bit different, because this passage is mostly all directions, directives. In fact, as a young man, I I would often lump this whole section of scripture right in with much of what you read in the book of uh, Leviticus, like what you do with festering boils and what you do with mildew breakouts and, and blight and all of that. And I was just wrong. But even so, This is going to require a little fortitude on our part as we move forward because the lion's share of the text that that we're called to study, all 12 chapters, reads something like this. I'll just give you an example. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains, finely twisted linen and purple, blue, and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle. Make 40 silver bases to go under them. Two bases for each frame, one under each projection. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It's to be square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay. I think you get the idea. You see, from Exodus 25 all the way through Exodus 31, we have instructions. We have implicit directions. Well, I'm going to give you actually all those implicit directions right here. Hold on, put on your seatbelt. How uh, those directions were all aimed at how to make the ark, how to make the golden table, how to make the lampstand, how to make the tabernacle, how to make, make the altar of burnt offering, how to make the courtyard, how to make the oil of, uh, of the lamp 
uh, and stand, how to make the priestly garments, how to consecrate priests so they can serve in the tabernacle, how to make the altar of incense, instructions about atonement money, how to make the basin for washing, how to make uh, the anointing oil, how to make tabernacle incense. That's a lot. And then other than a short break in the middle in chapter 36 to the end of chapter 40, we read about how these details are actually turned into a reality. You also see in these verses that God isn't going to just go to Home Depot and pick up any type of labor to build this tabernacle. He chooses and supernaturally equips craftsmen so that even the building is done with God's supervision and ability. It's remarkable. Exodus 31 gives us a snapshot of that. It says, when the Lord said to Moses, verse 2, see I've chosen Bezal, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the spirit of God. That was a very unusual thing at that time. With wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills. To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze. To cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of crafts. To make everything I've commanded you. You see in all of this, both God's very detailed instructions. And God's equipping, filling and anointing of the craftsmen to work on the tabernacle resulted in the creation of a home, a sanctuary that was God's through and through. For in seeing it, its walls, its altar, its furnishings, you were seeing like a Rembrandt earlier, the very creativity, the very hand of a master artist, in this case God. And it must have been absolutely beautiful. And it surely communicated, all on its own, the reality that God was indeed among them. Remember back to Exodus chapter 17, uh, the people were actually asking that question. They said, is God among us or not? The project of the tabernacle really left no question for, the genera- for that generation as to whether God was in their midst. And here's the one-two punch. Not only did he design it and build it, but God also, according to Exodus 40, 34, fills it with that presence that we just talked about says this, then the cloud of the glory cloud, the cloud of God's presence covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, I want us to look, if we could, from the text and, and look forward, okay? Let's, let's look at the similarities because there are many between the tabernacle, Jesus, and us as God's people. You see, the tabernacle was made by God was the place where God dwelt, a place where heaven intersected with earth, and a place to reveal God to the world. Now consider the gospel of John chapter 1. Jesus was the son of God and he tabernacled among us. He was the place where God dwelled. He was where heaven intersected with earth. And he was the place where God revealed himself to the world. And now in our time, consider the result of Jesus' work on the cross in us. God has made us his tabernacle. <laughs> Ephesians 3.17. We are the place where he dwells. We now are where heaven intersects with the world. We now are the place where God reveals himself to the world. So as we pray that God would supernaturally reveal himself to the nation, God's nations, God says, it'll be through you. 
as we pray that God would miraculously reach out to our street corner, to our neighbors, and grab them and draw them to himself, God says, it'll be through you. So don't look down on yourself. I mean, God is crafting you, isn't he? If, if you're anything like me, he's doing whole like room remodels as we speak in you. He's bumping you, moving you into his perfect design. He's able to do that. He's God. He wants the detail of the, his craftsmanship to be seen in you. And he wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit so the world can see him clearly. Don't be, believe the lie that all the great movements of God are now in our past. Could it be that the appearing of Jesus, his work on the cross, his forgiveness for sins, is a greater, more complete work than anything that we see in Exodus 25 through 40? We expect, we should expect that God would want to display his mighty power, earth-shaking power in our generation and generations to come. Let's just pause and consider that. Let's consider just kind of the the normal life that we all have. I mean, besides getting dressed up for church and coming, you have a life that's just very mundane, also like mine, where you have to eat and drink a cup of coffee and get showered off in the morning. But God wants to step in, set up his camp in the middle of your life, fill you with his presence and use you mightily if you let him. We're on the home stretch here with this message. Uh, when I was five years old, I had a best friend. His name was Robert DeGaston. And he lived right across the street from me. He and I got into all sorts of trouble together. He was a spitfire of a kid. And at the end of our street, kind of as the street turned and went around the corner, there were a couple houses that weren't all that taken care of, you know, and, and some big, loud, gruff characters that lived there. They just drank beer all the time and, and were out there with loud music and working on their cars. My mom and dad would just say, you got to stay away from that end of the street. Well, every once in a while, sometimes multiple times a day, you would hear one of those big, you know, race car engines, start up and it would be idling too fast and they'd be working on it and kind of monkeying with it and then when they got it right you could hear him skid out of the driveway and boom that meant get out of the way because he was going to be peeling rubber all the way down our street I can remember this day (laughs) yeah buddy you might have been one of those guys (laughs) so all of a sudden I'm playing with Robert in his front yard and I can hear that motor crank on, boom, and something just snapped in me. I just got really mad. And in the middle of Robert's front yard was this humongous peach tree, you know, one of those trees that where the fruit was never picked. And I ran over to that thing and grabbed the juiciest, soggiest peach that I could grab and walked down to that sidewalk. And sure enough, this guy comes peeling up the road. And I threw that peach as hard as I could. And it hit the front window of that car smack dab in the middle and just absolutely exploded all over his paint job, all over his intake manifold, all over the whole car. And I obviously wasn't thinking because this guy slammed on his brakes, came out, big long brown hair, stained t-shirt, tattoos on each arm, and I thought, I am dead meat. 
And so Robert and I just ran. We did the only thing that we could do. We ran into his house, locked the door, ran down the hall, and actually went into his closet and shut the door and just sat there. And sure enough, all of a sudden I hear this. And Robert's sister, I could hear her feet across the linoleum opening that door and I could hear some loud talk. And then I could hear her steps running all the way down the hall. How she knew that we were in Robert's closet, I have no clue. But she opened that closet, found me and said, you're in trouble. And I was so afraid, I told the man where you live. And I thought, oh, I'm just so in trouble. So I ran to the door. Sure enough, this guy, this guy, you know, shirt kind of half pulled out of his pants. He's just kind of walking across over to my house. And I ran as fast as I could to my house, got behind the in the door, closed the door, locked it, and just stood there and didn't know what to do. And sure enough, the door's knocking. My mom, who has no clue what's going on, comes out of the kitchen with this little apron that she had made on the sewing machine, you know, and she walks up to the door, having no clue what to expect, and opens it. And this guy had already opened the screen and had one foot in, and he, for 60 seconds, began to tell my mom about what, all the bad things that I'd done and how I deserved the worst possible punishment. And I'll never forget this. My mom just paused. Well, she hadn't said anything yet, so she, I guess she wasn't pausing. He paused, and she let him pause, and then just responded by saying, maybe if you didn't drive so fast down the street, something like this wouldn't happen to you. And I was standing behind her, and I thought, she is so cool. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And she said, have a good day, shut the door on this man's face, gently, and then turned around, and I thought, I mean, as much as I was filled with joy, I was also, in that moment, struck with just total fear for my life. And she just got down on one knee and looked at me right in the eyes. And she said, you know you did something wrong, don't you? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm so scared. I'll never do it again. <laughs> and she said, I know. And she just put her hand on my head and walked back into the kitchen. And that was it. You see, I received total mercy from my mom that day, didn't I? And that's really our last point today. At the center at the very heart of God, what do we find? We find mercy. I really wrestled with this text this last week. There are so many different things to cover. This passage represents the consummation, the moving in together portion of the marriage between God and Israel. It also is the beginning of the sacrificial system, which still would be in place hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago during Jesus' day. It again gives us a picture of the manifestation of the angel of the Lord who I believe is the pre-incarnate Christ. The same God that would someday hang on the cross for our sins was the God who stood hidden away in the pillar of smoke during the day and clothed by fire at night. Always protecting, always guarding, always leading the nation of Israel for all the time it traveled in the desert. But I want to close today by focusing our attention on something else. Even though God was setting in place a need for a high priest, a priesthood, and Levites, that, that who Christ is was being also represented in the design and the function 
The working out, the outworking of the tabernacle. Remember all the detail that we talked about? That detail also speaks about him and his work. You see, the tabernacle had one entrance, didn't it? Exodus 27, 16 tells us. John 14, 6 says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. One entrance. Exodus 27, 18 teaches us that in the courtyard of the tabernacle was the altar of burnt offering. This is where animals were sacrificed repeatedly in order to cover the sins of God's people. John 1, 36 says that Christ is our sacrifice and has offered up his life so that we can be free forever. Hebrews 7, 27. Past the altar of burnt offering, we find the basin of cleansing. Here the priests would wash and make themselves ritually clean so they could proceed into the tabernacle. But we, God's people, have been washed by Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.11, and have been cleansed by the word of Christ, Ephesians 5.26, and have had our bodies washed by the pure water of Christ, Hebrews 10.22. What about the lampstand? John 9.5 says Christ is the light of the world, the true light coming into the world, and he enlightens every man, John 1, 9. The table of the bread of his presence, well, John six thirty five says that Christ now is the very bread of life. He's the show bread. The altar of incense, Revelation 5, 8 says that now the prayers of those who follow Jesus are like incense that rise before him. The veil, Mark 15, 37 through 38 says that when Christ died, the veil was torn from top to bottom in the temple, forever removing the separation between God's people and the most holy place. And behind that veil, this most holy place, this heart of God's heart, we know that one man, one priest, once a year was allowed to enter that holy place, the tabernacle. And what did that priest find there? He found mercy. For hovering above the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God himself was enthroned, For Samuel 4.4. It was this place that was called by God the mercy seat, Exodus 25.22. It was the open door for man to interact with God. The open door for man to lay their needs before God. An open ear from a listening, caring, merciful God. The ear, that ear, was the ear of our sympathetic, merciful, high priest, Jesus. Hebrews 4. There is only one way, family, to the heart of God. It's through a saving relationship for us. A saving relationship with Jesus, the Son of God. And when you get to the heart of God, you will not find terrible fire, lightning, and quaking. You'll find mercy. What do you find when you go to God? Do you know His kindness that really leads you to a better life? His kindness that leads you to repentance and humility. A a choice to go his way. His kindness woos us to go his way. This is how we're going to end today. Regardless of where you are today, God offers us his presence. His presence makes all the difference, doesn't it? If you'll make room for him, he wants us to he wants to come and make his tabernacle inside of us. 
He wants to shape you, reshape you, recreate you, and then shine out of you to a world that's just desperately needy to see God. And he really, really, really wants you to know his mercy. A mercy that triumphs over judgment, doesn't it? You see, you, God, have made us for yourselves, for yourself. And our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in you. Pray with me. God, we, that's really true for us. And I, I, just, I just can tell that it's, it's a shared common uh, response of this family here today. They say, yes, God, I just admit my heart is restless and I do want to find rest in you. I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit, your presence. I want to be uh, a tabernacle that displays you to the world. And I want to know your mercy so that I can extend mercy. So God, we're just asking according to your will and I just am believing that you're hearing us right now. So thank you for giving us what we've asked of you. Come and move in us. Come, Jesus, move in us. Come. Just keep our eyes on Jesus for a moment. Today we have mikvah bowl set up. Don't be ashamed. All of us have impurity in our lives. But if today you want to just put a stake in the ground and just say, symbolically, I'm going to come forward and take my hands and dip them into this living water and ask God to wash my eyes or my heart or my mind or whatever. Just come. Uh, There's no embarrassment in that. It's just good leadership. So come.